Welcome to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations, a podcast featuring members of the St. Mark's Cathedral community in Seattle, Washington. These interviews feature lives of faith and adventure, service and connection. Here's our host, Michael Pereira. I've seen Maria Caldwell's name across St. Mark's, I think since the first Sunday that I started attending, and that was all the way back in November 2015. And I always wondered who Maria Caldwell was. And it wasn't until, what was it, 2019, before the world went mad, that Maria and I finally had the chance to sit down in the Narthex for the Open Front Door Ministry, and for the first time, after so long, get to know each other. And with the conversations that she and I had at that time, I just knew I had to talk with her in more detail. I think I was always going to interview Maria for this podcast, but getting to know her and getting to just have a little sample of her conversation, for me, that was, that was the catalyst to say one way or another, she and I are going to sit down, and we're going to have a full conversation. And then the cathedral closed. So that's why over Zoom and very socially distanced, I am very, very happy and honored to welcome Maria Caldwell to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations. Maria, thank you so much for talking with us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Michael. Jeez, I have so many questions, so many hows and whens and wheres and whys, but I do want to have you do most of the talking here. So how did church begin for you? I mean, given everything you've done at St. Mark's, there's a part of me that thinks this goes really deep for you. And in a way it has to, but I know nothing about how your story started. So how did your story start? Well, I grew up in upstate New York. Um, I was born in Troy, New York, which is on the banks of the Hudson River. And I was baptized a Lutheran. That was my mother's faith. But along about the time I was five years old, uh, my parents decided to change to the Presbyterian Church. That was my father's church. I think they felt the Sunday school was better there. Um, So... I went to Sunday school and got confirmed in the Presbyterian church when I was probably 13 or 14. And then I went off to college at Yale in Southern Connecticut. And while I was there, I was very inspired by William Sloan Coffin, who was the chaplain at Yale in those days. He was a very uh, activist, person involved in the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam war protests and sort of inspired me in the area of social justice. And I became a member of the UCC congregational church uh, in Connecticut and was a member of UCC churches for over 10 years while I was uh, being an undergraduate and a graduate student at Yale and then joined the faculty. Um, And it wasn't until 1987 when my husband and I moved from Connecticut to Seattle that I found St. Mark's Cathedral and the Episcopal Church. Uh, We moved to a house here on Capitol Hill And we were doing a certain amount of 
church shopping in the area. I remember going to Central Lutheran Church, for instance, and I think we went to the Presbyterian Church downtown. But somehow we ended up in St. Mark's Cathedral on Easter Sunday in April 1987. And my husband and I are both musicians. And when we heard the Flintrop organ and the cathedral choir and the brass and, uh, you know, the, the great music and liturgy that was on display at, at St. Mark's, we kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, I, I think this is the place. This is where we belong. You chose a really good day, Easter Sunday. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the highlight of, of the year in terms of both choral and instrumental music. But um, I think within a month, I met with Peter Halleck, who was the organist choir master at that time, and he invited me to join the cathedral choir. It was kind of near the end of the year, but I think for about a month in uh, June of 1987, I, that was my first time singing with the cathedral choir, and I have been doing that for... 33 years at this point. Um, I've never even taken a sabbatical. I've just <laughs> done it uh, singing under Peter Halleck, first of all, and then Mel Butler, and then Michael Kleinschmidt. And, and fantastic in their own different ways. And I've enjoyed every minute of, of singing in cathedral choir at St. Mark's. My husband has also participated in the musical ministry at St. Mark's. He's not much of a singer, but he's an instrumentalist, and uh, his special instrument is recorder, playing Baroque and early music. And so he's given concerts or played with the choir occasionally. At the moment, he's on the roster of musicians that play for the contemplative service at uh, 7 p.m. on Sundays. Yeah, I've heard him play so a that's few times. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. I've heard him play a few times at seven o'clock and the the environment that that music creates in such a in such an intimate space is amazing yeah i love the contemplative service uh myself i i also enjoy the compline service although i don't attend regularly anymore um but that's a wonderful contemplative service also uh, every sunday evening I sometimes listen to it now on King FM or in the days of coronavirus, it's a little bit different just as the cathedral choir is not performing at the moment, uh, but there's a nice quartet of singers every Sunday morning and I certainly enjoy the music there as I listen to the virtual service. What draws you to church music and, and singing in the choir specifically? Well, I mentioned that, you know, I'm a musician at heart. I, I began playing piano, I think, when I was in kindergarten, and then got flute when I was in the fifth grade, and became quite an accomplished flutist. I was in all-state bands and things like that when I was in uh, high school, and I decided to major in music um, when I went to college, and ultimately got a PhD in music history. Um, I'm a specialist in medieval 
music. I wrote my dissertation about 13th and 14th century French music. Uh, and I started my professional career as a college professor of music history. Um, I taught primarily at Yale, but also taught for a year at the University of Chicago, which was a good experience. Um, I didn't really begin singing until I was in college. I remember attending a concert when I was a freshman at Yale, and it was a concert of 15th century music, uh, Dufay and Akagem, um, composers that most people have probably never heard of, but uh, it, it really influenced me. It, it opened up a whole new sound world to me, the sound of modal music and polyphony, meaning many voices uh, in counterpoint with each other. And I just thought after that concert, boy, I really want to sing that kind of music. At the same time, I was getting interested in the earlier varieties of the flute. Um, I began to play Baroque flute and Renaissance flute, both wooden flutes, and you know became much more interested in early flute technique, um, primarily when I was a graduate student at Yale. Yale had a collection of historical musical instruments and uh, the person in charge there, Richard Rephan, um, was kind enough to loan me a, a Baroque flute for a while so that I could practice on it. Um, on an actual Baroque flute? Yeah. That's amazing. It wasn't a particularly valuable one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's also when I became more and more of a singer. So by the time I got to Seattle in 1987, you know, I was very comfortable joining the cathedral choir. And doing that actually made people here in Seattle think that I was a singer <laughs> rather than a flute player. So in truth, I ended up doing a lot more singing over the years than I did uh, Baroque flute playing. Although, you know, Charles and I, my husband and I have played Baroque flute and Baroque recorder with either harpsichord or chamber organ um, for cathedral associates events uh, at St. Mark's. So I didn't totally give up the flute, but I certainly began to do much more singing in Seattle than I'd done before. And early music is my specialty, okay? It's not just my dissertation that was about this stuff, but I love performing early music. And after I moved to Seattle, I got into nonprofit arts management and managed a number of small musical organizations, including the Early Music Guild of Seattle for about 10 years in the 90s. And then uh, an organization called Early Music America, which is the national service organization for the field of early music. For somebody who loves early music as much as you do and with the musical talent and insight that you have, you really came to the right place. I mean, I can only imagine the conversations that you and Peter Halleck and Mel Butler and Michael Kleinschmidt and Rebecca Gilmore and so many others, that must have been, in a way, a homecoming almost. 
Well, yeah, let me say something about Peter Halleck. Uh, you know, not only was he a great organist and choir master at St. Mark's, but he was a fabulous early music performer. He was a countertenor, a, a male alto, and uh, had sung for a little over a year at Canterbury Cathedral as a male alto uh, in England. And uh, when he came back to Seattle, he did lots of concerts as a solo countertenor with his friend Ava Heinitz at the University of Washington who played viola da gamba and Miriam Terry and others on harpsichord. And uh, my husband, Charles, who got his college degree from Washington State had actually heard Peter Halleck perform um, during his college days um, in Washington. And so, you know, Peter had, had been quite an excellent uh, regional performer of early music uh, as a singer. Also, Peter Halleck started doing the Messiah every year at St. Mark's Cathedral with Baroque instruments, um, historically informed performances of Handel's Messiah every December. And, you know, by the time I showed up in 1987, these performances had been going on for several years. And he used primarily musicians from the Portland Baroque Orchestra at that time, uh, because Seattle didn't have a Baroque Orchestra yet. Mm -hmm. And he used uh, regional soloists, including Nancy Zilstra as the great soprano at that time. And the St. Mark's Cathedral Choir was the chorus for Messiah with uh, Peter conducting. And so my first several years at St. Mark's, I was in the chorus of the Messiah um, at St. Mark's. And that, that was a wonderful tradition that went on for, for many years. Mel Butler continued uh, conducting the, the Messiah in that historically informed way for uh, several years after Peter retired. Um, but eventually it was, uh, it was turned over to the forces of the Seattle Baroque Orchestra and the Tudor Choir to professional organizations, and they began to hire more nationally known uh, soloists. And that was all well and good, but as it turned out, the budget for the event became more and more expensive, and Cathedral Associates began losing money uh, eventually on the messiahs. And so unfortunately we had to call a halt to that wonderful tradition. But um, Peter Halleck did a great deal to get early music um, started in Seattle in general, but also specifically at St. Mark's Cathedral. That runs deep. I've, I've talked to so many people who have worked with Peter Halleck, served with Peter Halleck, sung with Peter Halleck, who created this amazing tradition. I've never met Peter Halleck. He passed away before I came to St. Mark's, but his fingerprint is on so much of what we do as a worship community, certainly, but then also as a center for, center for music, center for the arts, it's wonderful to hear your story add to 
his legacy and that's a legacy we, we might never fully see the end of that we might never fully appreciate how much of what we do and how much of what we are known for as a place for music as a place for art is the result of his vision and his work well and of course the compline choir was the the biggest thing that he left i suppose as, as his musical legacy at at st mark's but uh you know that started out as a small chant choir i believe in the 1950s that you know peter just got some men together to sing gregorian chant and an anglican chant and uh, started doing the compline service every sunday night just for friends and family initially but then it's you know, it's grown into such a wonderful, uh, popular service, particularly with young people from the area, but, you know, been broadcast on King FM for many, many years. And it's, it's a wonderful legacy from Peter that we have at St. Absolutely. How did you start to get more involved with community life at St. Mark's? Well, I, for many years when I was a busy working professional, I was not terribly involved in St. Mark's. I always sang with the cathedral choir, but I didn't really have the time to devote to the cathedral for, for quite a while. Um, I did do two terms of service on the vestry. Um, my first term of service was during the early years of Robert Taylor's ministry at St. Mark's. And I helped with strategic planning at that time and you know, being involved in nonprofit management, managing smaller musical organizations. I was fond of strategic planning and had something to offer, I felt, um, at that point. But then I, I retired from my job as executive director of Early Music America at the end of 2012. And I also was on the vestry at that time. Um, somehow I, I seem to have been on the vestry at the beginnings of, of two different deans ministries because Steve Thomason arrived in, uh, I think, around September 1st of 2012, and I was on vestry at that time and was on the vestry for 2012, 13, and 14. So I, I was also, I was uh, elected a junior warden in January or February of 2013, and um, so worked on the executive committee very closely with Steve for a couple years. Um, and, you know, I, I loved my work on, on the vestry, and, you know, we can <laughs> talk more about specific things that were happening at that time. Um, but after I got off the, the vestry, after uh, three years, uh, Steve asked me if I would consider becoming the canon for operations at St. Mark's. And so then I 
served as a staff person for a little over two and a half years at, at St. Mark's. Um, all of my work during that time, I think it's fair to say, was centered on the capital campaign and construction project, uh, but also on strategic planning, which I, you know, helped Steve with at the very beginning of his ministry in 2012, 2013. And then uh, later with... Uh, longer range strategic planning. I was uh, the chair of the committee for the 2030 plan, which was primarily looking at uh, facilities at, at St. Mark's. You mentioned being a canon for cathedral operations. What, what does that cover? Well, <laughs> uh, at that time, I wasn't, I wasn't eager to work full-time at St. Mark's, and so it was a 20-hour-a-week position. And I think Steve hired me primarily to work on the capital campaign and be a liaison uh, for the construction project. Um, but also, I was supervising certain employees in the areas of finance, communications, cathedral shop. I was doing some grant writing and fundraising as well as uh, strategic planning and uh, just trying to lighten the administrative burden a bit for Steve Thomason. Um, mm -hmm. Nowadays, now that we have Jim Pennell in that uh, full-time position, it's a lot more focused on facilities um, as well as other aspects of cathedral management. Um, I didn't really have the time in 20 hours a week to be in charge of facilities. So it was Glenn Sands and, and Steve and the facilities committee that were mainly handling that. But of course, the capital campaign and construction project um, took a great deal of my time. And uh, would you like to talk about the capital campaign and construction project? <laughs> I think one way or another, we would have covered what it's like to be the point person for renovating a cathedral that was, what, 70 80 years old at that point, I think? Well, 1929, yeah, I guess almost 90. Yeah, coming up on 90 years. I mean, mm. I remember dimly my first seeing St. Mark's in the light uh, the first time. It wasn't the first Sunday I was there because, like I said, there was a 7 p.m. service in November, so the place was dark. But <laughs> I still remember those red brick, those red and gray bricks, and that huge banner on the um, the eastern facade saying "Wherever you are in your journey of faith," and not really knowing what to make of that. I, I didn't know anything about cathedrals or the Episcopal Church or liturgical worship at that point, so um, it's still a little bit surreal to look at the before and after pictures of the building we have now yeah. and the building we had for a very long time up until then. I have an idea that the the seeds of the renovation were planted a very, very long time ago, but 
how did that come up on your docket? Well, as you say, uh, <laughs> the cathedral has had numerous uh, <laughs> renovation projects over the years, but when Steve Thomason arrived in September 2012, I mean, the, the outside of the cathedral was in terrible shape. The, I liked the banner you mentioned, but if you actually looked at the concrete and brick uh, exterior of the cathedral. It was, it was a mess. Mm. And in the winter of 2012-2013, large chunks of concrete actually began falling from the sides of the cathedral. And we had to put up fencing and do some immediate emergency repairs so that these falling chunks of concrete would not damage cars or people <laughs> and you know for a while we actually piled up uh, a number of these concrete chunks in front of the pulpit i don't know if you remember seeing the pile of of concrete chunks but they they it sat took me there. a while to figure out why we had <laughs> random concrete in the nave <laughs> but uh you know i think it was clear to everybody and and Steve most of all that we were going to have to engage in a capital campaign and a major renovation construction project uh, from that time. Um, after the emergency repairs were done I believe that we used the rest of 2013 to uh, begin to look into the scope of a renovation project. We did a feasibility study to see how much money we might be able to raise to do a project. And we, I think, issued the RFP, the uh, request for proposals that fall for um, architectural firms to uh, put in bids and, and, and plans for um, how they would work on a project at St. Mark's. And in 2014, I, well, we, we quickly selected Olsen Kundig to be the architectural firm that would be in charge of the renovations. And we selected Mark Rieke of the Enrichment Group um, to be our fundraising council at, at that point. And the capital campaign proceeded in stages. Um, so in, in 2014, we did the congregational part of the campaign. And that was while I was still on the vestry. And um, I think there must have been at least 50 of us um, working as serious volunteers on the congregational campaign at that point, working with Mark Rieke and others. And my particular job at, at that point was being co-chair of the communications part of the capital campaign. And um, Liz Sloat was the director of communications at that time, but Greg Block was already starting to be involved with communications and he was the one who designed the brochure for the capital campaign 
um, that was widely circulated. I had no idea that was Greg. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah. yeah, he did a great job on the brochure. And my particular job was creating a video uh, to be shown at the cottage meetings that we did with, you know, small groups of parishioners um, that fall. And I had never been involved in the production of a video before in my life, and <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. But um, we hired um, some outside uh, videographer camera guys that had a lot of experience with setting up uh cameras and lighting to do interviews with certain people. And I ended up uh, choosing the people that we would interview and wrote a a basic narrative script for the um, campaign video. And unbelievably, it it turned out very well. (laughs) And we were able to use that um, video as part of our publicity and uh, for the capital campaign, um, I, and the the congregational uh, part of the campaign went extremely well. We were able to get pledges of over five million dollars uh, in the fall of 2014. Now, most of the pledges were three to four year pledges, and so we knew it was going to take us a while to collect the funds to actually be able to start construction. But also at that point, Olson Kundig was beginning to assess uh, what needed to be done with our facilities committee and uh, drawing up some plans and estimates for the work. And it became clear to us that the amount of work that we wanted to do and that was necessary was going to cost way more than we thought we could possibly raise. So we ended up having to divide the construction project into phases. Mm-hmm. And it took us quite a while to determine exactly what the scope of phase one would be. But the most important things were cladding the outside of the cathedral with limestone in order to seal the building against rainwater. Um, And secondly, to replace all of the windows in the nave because they were literally falling apart. And we decided to replace them with much more uh, environmentally friendly windows, you know, triple pane, uh, excellent windows that that keep heat in and uh, cold air out. Uh, And also, we were extremely focused on accessibility. The cathedral was not very accessible at the time, and so adding an elevator and uh, repairing the front porch steps and patio and getting a new wheelchair ramp and other uh, accessibility features was uh, one of our top priorities. So, you know, that became the scope of the first phase of our construction. Even so, uh, having reduced the scope of the work somewhat, it was still going to cost over $10 million to get that work done. And we had raised between five and 6,000 at that point 
So we then moved on uh, to a second phase of the capital campaign, which was the major gifts phase. And we had help from the Collins group uh, of fundraisers at, at that point. And uh, John and Carol Hurster made a magnificent challenge gift at that point to spur other major gifts um, donations. Uh, at this point, I was on the staff of the cathedral, um, staffing the major gifts committee, which Marshall McCreel was in charge of. And Marshall did a wonderful job, and the Hursters were extremely active. And um, my particular contribution to that part of the campaign, I, I think that the most important thing I did was to write a grant proposal to the Norcliffe Foundation, which ultimately yielded a $500,000 gift for the cathedral. I was also on the executive committee of the Cathedral Foundation of the Diocese of Olympia, and uh, Steve Reed, the treasurer, and the other members of the executive committee uh, forged ahead and, and were able to promise a $1 million plus uh, gift to the cathedral at that point from the foundation funds. Um, so by the end of the major gifts phase of the campaign, we had raised over $3 million um, in that phase. And, you know, people were still contributing from the congregation. And so that part was probably up to about $6 million at that point. And at that point, the, the bishop and the dean really helped out a lot in terms of a diocesan phase of the campaign where they went out to different parishes around the diocese asking for help, commitments of one sort or another to help with the cathedral construction project. Uh, at that point, we're basically up to 2017, which is also the year that the actual construction happened. Mm -hmm. um, prior to 2017, we'd hired Spectrum Development Solutions to be our project manager for the construction project, and they were just wonderful. They did all kinds of work um, to help us select the right construction company and then to make all kinds of decisions about construction. We worked with Turner Construction Company, mm -hmm. and um, between the work of Spectrum and Turner, you know, we were able to move forward with the construction project throughout the 2017 year. Um, we ended up the 2017 year with a major gala um, in December, which was kind of the capstone event of the capital campaign. And once again, I was in charge of creating a video for that event, uh, again, with an outside team of uh, videographers. But um, that was my second video production. Um, I'll be honest, I haven't seen the first one, but I remember the second one. 
so well. I was at that gala and I, I had no idea that was your creation. That was an incredible collection of stories of what St. Mark's means to so many people, even people who don't come here, who aren't a part of the, the, the worship community, but who still see the cathedral as a place for them in terms of the services that we can offer. I had no yeah. idea you, you designed the video. Well, it wasn't just me. It was a, you know, a team of uh, committee workers and um, the outside videographers. But uh, the focus of that second video was the broader community. Um, I would say the focus of the first video was the congregation. It was part of the congregational campaign, whereas uh, the second video was uh, designed to communicate to the the broader Seattle community and the diocesan community and, you know, a little bit more on the outreach mm -hmm. uh, side of things. But at any rate, we were able to raise almost $10 million to fund a project that cost uh, between 10 and 11 million ultimately. And we were able to obtain a loan from Banner Bank to um, fund the difference. And uh, we're still paying off that loan, but uh, that's going very well. Um, so it, it is a real joy to me to see the outside of the cathedral yeah. now when I, when I walk past it. Um, it is such a, an improvement over what we had before. I mean, there's still work to be done. Um, we were not able to tackle the inside projects uh, during the capital campaign and construction that I worked on, but um, I think you know that one of the major things we hope to do in the future is to replace the heating and HVAC system in the cathedral and to replace the floor and to install radiant floor heating to improve the, the heat for the lower part of the cathedral so it doesn't all just go up to the ceiling, which is what heat tends to do in the winter. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't until I joined the vestry in 2017 that I learned the phrase deferred maintenance. <laughs> And I've learned quite a few things about deferred maintenance <laughs> since then. But on a very similar note, all the work you did for the capital campaign, I mean, it was work, uh, undeniably. And I'm sure it, it was at times slow-paced and frustrating, but at the same time, so overwhelming to see, to see what people would do to invest in certainly the physical aspects of the building, but then also what those physical aspects represent. And I think now as a community, we really feel that because the building is closed. That must have, I hope, it made all the frustration and the, the, the grit, the grind of the hard work a little bit easier to bear because you never wanted to do that full time. That was not your, you had other things going on in your life. Well, I was, I was happy to uh, make my contributions to the, the campaign and construction project. And I think there's always a, a bit of tension or, or conflict between raising money for a building on the one hand versus raising money for 
programs and staff and outreach and you know all of the important things that the cathedral's involved in but our congregation was extremely generous and some members of the community and some foundations were very generous and you know all together we were able to uh, fund this this very important restoration project and I do feel very happy and, and satisfied with the result. I think I mentioned that I worked on the 2030 plan during my years uh, as a staff person also and you know St. Mark's actually has three major buildings on its campus you know one is the cathedral itself another is Leffler House and another is the St. Nicholas building and you know we were able to identify a lot of work that would need to be done on on all three of those buildings in the area of deferred maintenance which you mentioned and i i think it's fair to say that the projects on leffler house have largely been uh, completed at this point um which is a good thing. One, one of the projects came about sort of by accident in that a tree fell into the carriage house, but you know, that roof has been replaced and, and some uh, major work done on the back of the, the carriage house, which needed to be done. And so Leffler house and the carriage house are in pretty good shape. We also tackled the parking lot to a certain extent. Um, it's still not completely repaved or ideal, but we were able to, uh, surface and, and uh, restrike the, the parking lot and to close off the driveway between the cathedral and the front lawn, which had previously been a rather dangerous part of our campus. And then uh, of course the labyrinth was installed in the front yard, which is a wonderful addition. And uh, now our major focus, I'm afraid, has to be on the St. Nicholas building, which has a great deal of deferred maintenance, especially uh, the roof is staring at us. Um, and there are many other projects that await at the St. Nicholas building. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the labyrinth. There are so many people who continue to make use of that labyrinth, even as the building is closed. We touched on this before, but how important it is that the building remain a place for the community at large, even when the building itself has to be closed. And especially when things are so crazy right now, still connect with something deeper and larger than what the world is showing us. So in a sense, I mean, I know there's a lot more work to be done and I don't want to trivialize it, but in a sense, that work has really paid off. Yeah, I personally am walking the labyrinth at least once a week um, during the coronavirus quarantine because I, I am a big proponent of contemplative prayer, which I am now practicing primarily in my own home. But um, walking the labyrinth once a week is, is a great uh, boost to my contemplative prayer practice. That's a really good segue to... A question that I ask a lot of people, and I really do want to put to you, why is all this important? I mean, we talked about your love of church music. That You've explained that. That makes sense. But to serve on the vestry, to be 
canon for operations to lead the cathedral through this huge renovation project. Why? And as you said, you had other things going on in your life. This was not a full-time engagement, but why did it speak to you in such a way that you said yes to these things? Well, I would mention one sort of seminal event in my life, and that was that I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 53. Um, this was 2006, essentially. Um, and I went through a really tough time, a whole year of surgery and radiation and chemotherapy and hormone therapy, and it was it was kind of bleak and hard for me. And I would say that for a portion of that year, I really felt God's absence in my life. I was not connecting very well. And I had a few counseling sessions with Sue Reed, who was um, one of the priests at the the church at that time and she was great and she offered me a book called when bad things happen to good people which was important for me to read at that point and slowly I began to reconnect with God and to feel the presence of Jesus Christ in other people I would have to say that some of the nurses and doctors that I worked with at the time and just friends um, who were supportive during that time, um, I really began to experience Jesus in other people. And that was a real turning point for me. It was a broadening of my understanding of the Trinity. I would say that I was always aware of God the Creator and the Holy Spirit, but I hadn't really figured out anything about the cosmic Christ. I knew about the historical Jesus, but the presence of, of Jesus in the world today, uh, in people, this was kind of a new experience for me, and it, it really did transform my life. I think that when you have cancer or some other serious illness, you begin to think about what's really important to you. What are the, the really important things that you want to do before you die, or how do you want to focus your energies um, that was really a turning point for me, I would say, in, in deciding to offer more of my time to the church and to spend more of my time in contemplative prayer and education. I uh, went through the EFM program. I should mention Education for Ministry. Um, Colleen Boynes was the mentor for the, the group that I was in, and she was fantastic. And that small group of people uh, became my brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, I really benefited a lot from the EFM program. And as you know, I'm now a mentor in the EFM program, um, continuing that work. 
But at any rate, when I, I, I took early retirement from my job as executive director of Early Music America, I, I retired at the end of 2012 um, when I was 60 years old and therefore was able to dedicate more time to things like the vestry and then working part-time for the cathedral for a number of years. Um, and it's, it's just one of those things that, that feels much more important to me now that I'm in um, what Richard Rohr would call the, the second half of life. Um, I'm not so focused on achieving, you know, professional goals or professional success, and I'm more interested in um, spirituality and relationships and um, serving the church. Thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. And, you know, in the, com in the few conversations that we had in 2019, this, this didn't come up naturally. So I, thank you for bringing that up and for, for shedding some light on why this speaks to you as deeply as it does. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you're welcome. And I miss our weekly conversations at the front door. <laughs> oh, that was, I, I'll admit, when I saw that our names were lined up on the same days, I was excited because I thought, finally, I can get to talk to Maria. And then also curious because I had no idea who you were. I mean, we knew off each other, I think. But there was just no... The first day that we sat down, it was starting from scratch. And I remember there were some days of doing front door ministry when nobody would come through. But <laughs> we would look at our watches and go, wow, it's been two hours. And that was, uh, that was amazing. And I, mean, I could easily return to a part two interview with you, I think, because just based on everything we talked about, there's so much more to uncover and so much more to connect back to the work that we do, even apart, the work that even as the cathedral is closed, the work that we're still called to do and that we can do to make sure that we're still the beacon on the hill and that people will still come to the labyrinth to walk or that they'll still tune into Compline or the live stream or whatever, because yeah, I'm really glad that those conversations set us off. I'm so happy about the live stream ministry. That's another thing that um, I worked on to, to get going, you know. Steve Thomason definitely wanted to do a live streaming ministry, and the bishop was encouraging and provided a, a congregational grant, uh, you know, to, to help get that uh, program going. But uh, we needed to find the right person to get the program up and running. And we interviewed, uh, I think, three or four candidates. And we're so happy to find Chris Brown. He was just the perfect fit. And he, he helped us buy the right equipment. And Glenn Sands was very involved in this also in terms of buying the, the cameras and the microphones and the computer equipment that was necessary to get things up and running. But, you know, Chris did a lot of research into the best live streaming 
services and formats. And, you know, there was a lot of work done. Uh, Liz Bartenstein definitely participated a, a lot in those conversations and, and getting the, the live streaming set up. And of course, at that point, when we first set it up a few years ago, um, we were only getting like, you know, under a hundred um, hits per, per Sunday. Most of the people that watched were in nursing homes or, you know, long-term care, or perhaps they were out of town and, and wanted to catch a service. But now, during the coronavirus, I mean, it has become so important. And I think the fact that we've had the experience of doing it for a few years has enabled St. Mark's to kind of step up and do a good job of, of live streaming and to improve the quality. Yeah. Uh, time has gone by and we're just attracting many more people to watch the services uh, throughout the diocese and even you know, nationally or, or beyond. Definitely. I've heard from a number of people outside the state and even uh, seen comments from a few outside the country who say that because their own churches are closed because of um, COVID-19, they tune in on Sunday mornings or they just watch the recorded version as it's uploaded later. For as serious as the as the quarantines are in a way this is also a great opportunity it's a great chance for us to certainly improve our own uh, our own processes and our own technical services but to reach out in a way that we wouldn't have even thought of doing otherwise i don't want to pat ourselves on the back too much but it's kind of nice that Thanks to your effort. I had no idea that you were part of that too. But again, because of what you did and Chris and Liz and Glenn, that we had something in place to say for all the precautions we have to take and for how much things have changed. Here's this one thing that's not going to change. A little bit of normality when things were not normal at all. That goes a long way. Yeah, it's a great ministry. Again, I'm confident that we could talk for hours. I mean, we certainly did uh, at Front Door, and this has been a wonderful conversation. Maria Caldwell, thank you so much for... It might not be possible to fully appreciate everything that you've done for St. Mark's. I mean, from the time you walked in on an Easter Sunday and said, wow, that's a great organ. <laughs> that's a great choir. I should probably sing in it. Uh, to... Even now, live streaming during a global pandemic. I cannot think of two things that are more unalike. But th thanks to the work that you've done and that hundreds of other people have done, we have a community like that now. I am truly and deeply grateful for the time you spend here today. Thanks very much, Michael. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our music was performed by Michael Kleinschmidt on the Flintrop organ at St. Mark's. Michael Pereira and Andrew Himes produced the podcast, and we hope you'll visit stmarks.org. So long!